Good afternoon. Let's get this party started. Uh, I'd like to go ahead and formally apologize to you Cowboys fans. It's just the way it rolls. Um, so uh, just DVR the game and just don't pay attention to your phone for the next two hours. Uh, my name is Bruce Kendrick. I'm the director of Life Initiatives here at Watermark and uh, just excited that uh, we have this opportunity really to take a step forward in uh, meeting the needs of vulnerable children and families here in Dallas County and really all over Dallas-Fort Worth as our Fort Worth campus met um, a couple weeks ago in just initiating uh, a meeting for those who are interested in foster care and adoption and our Plano campus is doing the same thing next week. Um, and as a way of just kind of getting this out of the way, uh, we're going to have a Q&A time here in a bit. And uh, this is the number we want you to just text questions into. So it just gives us the opportunity to kind of make sure that we go through the questions that are being asked frequently and that we make sure we address those. So if you've got your phone on you, go ahead and plug that in real quick because you will not see the screen again um, in a minute. So I'll leave that there. But um, uh, just by way of, of kind of giving you an overview of what our time today is going to look like, um, this is my friend Kim Lumpkin, and Kim and I are going to facilitate the discussion, and uh, we'll have a panel here in a bit, but we wanted to provide just a snapshot of kind of what's happening here in Dallas County, um, why it's so critical that Watermark Church be a part of this, and, um, and then also just know that all of you have stepped, thanks man, um, all of you have stepped in today with some motive or some expectation of what this is going to look like for you and your family. Uh, so maybe you're here and you're thinking, gosh, I, I just want to volunteer. Or I just want to support somebody else. But you, you walk by Casa's booth, or you walk by it later and you go, man, Casa seems like a strategic way to get involved and, and really make an impact. And so you become a Casa. Or maybe you thought you were going to be a Casa, but you sit down and we have this conversation. You get some questions answered and you go, I, I think we're ready to just open our home now. Um, but uh, regardless, uh, many of us start this process with a certain set of motivations or a certain set of expectations. And then along the way, um, God begins to clarify that and begins to kind of open our eyes and see that, that he's in the business of, of bringing us and bending us towards his will, not vice versa. Um, so some of you may have been praying for, for months or even years of just considering like, God, what would you have me do? And, and would you have me foster or adopt? Or, you know, would you have me step into the life of a, 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 a birth family who's struggling or a, a single mom who's struggling to keep her family together and uh, take care of her kids? Um, and, and then we realize like God's been doing something totally different behind the scenes. And, uh, he, he begins to use you, begins to use your family and your home to bring about his glory and his gospel in the life of somebody who previously did not know Christ. Um, and so I'm, I'm expecting that that's going to happen in your experience in the same way that it happened in mine. So, um, all that being said, let me introduce my family real quick. Uh, I won't go through everybody and this isn't quite everybody, but, uh, we've got nine kids, uh, yes, it is a race and we're winning. So, um, just in case that was, uh, that was ever in question, but my wife and I started fostering, uh, about 15 years ago, we were newlyweds and just had one empty room in our house. And my wife looked at me and said, Hey, I think we should become foster parents. And I said, you do that. Um, and so we just started fostering. <laughs> that's not the way it works, by the way. Um, we just started fostering one child at a time. So we didn't start with nine, 
right? We had one biological daughter who was one year old and we thought, you know what? We think we can handle kids like zero to five right now, one at a time. And so we started doing that. And then over time, God uh, just began to kind of impress upon us his vision, his heart, and his desire because we started with the mindset that we would only foster uh, because we had our biological daughter and we thought, oh, okay, infertility isn't an issue for us. And so we'll just have these kids come into our home. And if they become adoptable, then uh, we'll just pass them on. We'll do the loving thing. We'll just pass them on to families who are dealing with infertility so that they can have a family, right? And that seemed like a really good concept on the surface. But the more that we thought about it and the more that we experienced it, we realized we were, we were turning a child into a project um, or a child into a ministry, and uh, in, in many cases, uh, we've got to understand that, that God's doing something more than maybe what we have in mind. So again, as you've come in and as you've got um, just motivations and ideas and expectations for what your family will look like or how you'll engage in this, um, I want to encourage you to just be thoughtful about what God's heart actually is. Um, that you wouldn't ask God to bend to your will, but that you would find yourself bending to his. So this is my friend, Kim. I will in a minute. I'm going to let you introduce yourself first, though. Your mic's right there. So this is my friend, Kim Lumpkin. And is she on? Hello. She's on. Cool. Hey there. So this is my family. Um, I, our story started about, um, I guess, 15 years ago or so. I was um, getting my undergrad in social work. And uh, worked for uh, my first job out of college was uh, for CPS and then ended up working at various um, private foster care agencies and then went to domestic as um, private agencies as well. And um, since that did not pay the bills very well, I went to the um, booming field of teaching um, and got quite the raise, actually. Um, but our first year in teaching um, ended up just going to the other side of the table, and we completed our foster care, foster care training during my first year of teaching. Um, the last day of school, we got the phone call for Tatiana, who is the, well, she's the only girl. Um, and she was about to be six at the time. Um, we had her for about two years before we were able to adopt her. We, so she, we were her first placement, and we actually, it actually ended in adoption, which isn't very common, but we're thankful for that. Um, I forgot. About, I always forget about my biological son. Don't tell him. Um, he was about seven at the time. Uh, when Tatiana came, and um, and then after we had Tatiana for two years, um, we got a phone call about this kid who uh, had been in care for a while, and um, he was free for adoption, so his parents' rights had been terminated already, and he had been waiting for an adoptive home, and so processed that with community, and he came into our home right before he turned 13 years old, and that's him um, next to me. And that's also my husband, uh, Zach, of almost 20 years. So, um, and we're super excited that our oldest is going to be on the panel as well. So that's kind of a cool thing. So, yeah, yeah awesome. So, um, 
Just by way of some housekeeping things before I pray and we like dig into this thing, um, you've got some cards there on your um, on your seat. Uh, we didn't ask that you like have a ticket or anything to get in or check off to make sure you registered, but this is your ticket to get out of the room. Um, the reason being is because um, as just a minister who works a lot with CPS and works with families, um, uh, I get calls. And the church gets calls about kids that are in need and kids that need placement. And uh, ordinarily, we're just kind of like, hey, okay, well, we'll send it out to the, you know, the agencies that we have relationships with. But because Watermark has the opportunity and the ability to make a s- significant impact on the population here, we want to have the, the, um, the opportunity to be able to like, take a call and then be like, hey, we know you know, this family is open for kids this age and is looking for kids, you know, of, of this gender or, or uh, this age or whatever, um, and be able to call you up and say, hey, there's a kid that needs a home. Um, and so if you're interested in foster care adoption, we'd love for you to fill that out. If you're interested in volunteering or getting connected with that, the tapestry ministry here, uh, we'd love for you to fill that out, but you'll just drop that off in, uh, there's a bucket, uh, just a clear bucket on one of the back tables as you leave the room. Um, uh, so make sure you fill that out and, and leave it with us before you leave so that uh, we can stay in touch. And real quick, for those of you who have just come in, um, I Hitting moved this slide to uh, this. So if you have any questions, text that in, and it's the magic of technology. It'll come on my computer, and I'll be able to, we'll be able to hopefully get to that. And also, there's like a million seats up front. Um, we don't buy don't be anything, shy. so feel free if you guys are still coming in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you got anything else before I pray? Awesome. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this afternoon and for, um, just Todd's message a few weeks back as, uh, you compel us. And as we've been obedient and just accepting the invitation to, to follow you in this journey and in, in your heart for the fatherless, we understand that, um, we're not asking you to join us in something, uh, that we've gotten started. Uh, you've been doing this since the garden. And so, um, we pray that you would continue to move us, continue to open our hearts and our minds and, uh, help us not be isolated in doing this. Uh, Father, help us not believe the lie that um, somehow if, if we aren't capable of, of rescuing or healing or, or fixing an issue, that somehow we've failed, but uh, that if we don't allow the church or even insist that the church be the church, uh, that that's failure. And so help us support one another and encourage one another. Help us spur one another on towards love and good deeds, um, that you might receive glory and that your gospel uh, might be spread throughout this community and throughout our area. Uh, We pray for clarity during our time today. And uh, as people walk out, Father, I pray that they would walk out with a point of action in mind and uh, continue to step in obedience to you. We love you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So I want us to kick off um, just by kind of dropping a bomb in the room, um, which is always the best way to start, and uh, give you a snapshot of what's happening in your county. Uh, so here on the right is an image of the zip codes in Dallas County. Uh, this is provided by my friends at the Texas Association for the Protection of Children. And um, uh, they're here in Dallas, and they've, they've developed this map of really the entire state of Texas that ranks kind of where the needs of children are based upon, uh, I think, three or four different factors. So one is uh, child fatalities. Another one is the crime rate. Another one is poverty. And... Um, uh, the, the last one is teen pregnancy, okay? And if you're looking at this, you may be able to pick out your zip code. Uh, you may be able to kind of figure out where you live uh, in, in respect to this map. But I think the most intriguing thing that when I looked at this is 
where Watermark sits, where this church physically sits, okay, is that black marker right up there, right in the midst of two huge, dark, bright red spots and an orange spot, right? Um, And what that tells me is that God didn't place this church in this area for no reason. He didn't just go, you know what, this is a nice piece of land that's next to some highways that's easily accessible for people to come and go and get to church and get out. Um, that there are families and children in need, that there are economies that are in need, uh, there are neighborhoods and schools that are in need, and we have the opportunity to be the light and salt uh, as, as we are as God's people, um, to step into this community, to be right where we're at, and know that God can use us uh, to help bring some healing. So statistically speaking, about 1,300 kids are in foster care in Dallas County every month, um, about 718 licensed homes, okay? So roughly 720 licensed foster and adoptive homes here in Dallas County. Um, And that means that we've got a shortage of over 600 homes, okay? About 230 of you registered today. So it's a step forward, right? Um, It's a significant step forward. Uh, If you talk to any of my friends who are with CK um, Family Services or Buckner or CPS uh, who are here today, and they would say, man, if we, if we can get 230 more homes today, we'll be talking about some serious impact on the lives of children and families here in this community. Um, about 47, about 47.3% of kids that are removed from Dallas County are placed outside of Dallas County. And typically the reasoning is there aren't enough beds, there aren't enough homes for those children here. And so they've got to be placed elsewhere. Uh, and in my experience, elsewhere isn't always just Collin County. Sometimes elsewhere is Amarillo. Sometimes elsewhere is El Paso. Um, many times, especially for our high needs kids who've really experienced severe trauma, um, they've got to go to Houston to be cared for or San Antonio to be cared for. Um, even though we have all kinds of resources and we've got children's and, and they've got a foster care unit, all kinds of great stuff right here in Dallas County. Many of our kids have to go somewhere else just so that they have a bed, uh, just so that they have a place to stay. And then here in Dallas County, we've got about 550 kids waiting to be adopted. 550 kids. So um, on kind of a grander scale across the state of Texas, we've got roughly 7,000 children waiting to be adopted across the state. Um, and again, just kind of thinking back, like what kind of testimony is it for God's people to step in and say, hey, we'll take care of that. Um, we can address that. Um, and, and I want to press this a little bit further because it's, I think it's easy for us to think of adoption um, because we're adopted, right? Um, we've all been engrafted into God's family. And so we often think like, oh, okay, adoption must be the way forward for this. Um, but what we really want to prioritize, especially for these kids who are coming into foster care, isn't necessarily adoption, although that's certainly something we want you to hold in mind uh, and be willing to do, that when God brings a child to your doorstep, um, that you'd be willing to do whatever's in the the best interest of that child. Um, And that may be adoption. But before it's going to be that, it's almost always going to be family reunification. So family restoration um, and stepping into the life uh, of a family that's dealing with generational cycles often of poverty, abuse, violence, addiction, um, and those types of things. And so uh, as we build out the ministry here at Watermark, we're going to make sure that it's comprehensive and that we're not just like, I'm not just tossing that ball to you and saying, all right, go fix them. (laughs) Um, But that we talk about 
okay, how do, how do we do this holistically? How do we think about the needs of these children and families and really make sure that um, they're surrounded well? And so I, you'll hear me talk about the continuum of care a lot um, because we don't just want moms coming in or, or pregnant women coming in and going, hey, we'll take your baby. Because that's not our message. That's, that's not the message of the gospel even. Um, our message truly is, hey, we want to do, we want to meet you right where you're at. Uh, we want to see you healthy and restored. We want to see you become a part of this community. We want you to know that there's forgiveness and restoration um, in God and in your relationship with Christ. Uh, and so let us just meet you wherever you're at. And if you choose to place for adoption, let us support you and encourage you. Um, if, if you choose to parent, we want to support and encourage you in that as well. Um, but there are vastly more families in that prevention side of things than there are in the adoption side. And so rather than just kind of sit around and wait until families are falling apart and say, oh, okay, now, now that you're not able to care for your child, now we'll step in. We want to go upstream and we want to make sure that, that we're supporting those families well and caring for those families before they break down. Um, and so we're going to develop some efforts in prevention. Uh, family support is huge. As I kind of mentioned already, um, it, it is, it is a, a fool's errand. Uh, to step into this uh, much the same way. I know this because this is how my wife stepped, my wife and I stepped in. Uh, we just thought, man, we love Jesus. So, you know, love is going to be enough and we're going to be enough because we love Jesus and Jesus is enough, right? And so just all these kind of Christian euphemisms started just pouring out of us. And um, we're five years into it, just completely burned out. And our marriage is stressed and our work life is stressed and our bio kids are stressed. And we had one lady from our church finally come up to me and just say, hey, I've been offering to babysit for y'all forever. I made a casserole, take it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's kind of how the ministry that we first got started was born. We thought it was going to be a casserole ministry. Um, and we were like, casseroles are great. And then she was like, I can do more than casseroles. And we're like, really? Okay. Um, and so just continuing to see support come. And so we've even encouraged many of you. We hope that some of you are in this room who are like, nope, not going to open my home. It's just not, that's not where I'm at. That's not what I feel like uh, I need to be doing or where, whatever. Um, but you're ready and willing to walk alongside buddy, somebody who is opening their home, who is ready to make that step and give their family to a child that doesn't have one or give their family to a child whose family is being restored um, and support them and make sure that, that uh, nobody, nobody gets to do this on their own, okay? So that needs to be something just from the get-go that, uh, that you grasp, that this isn't something that you just kind of step in and go, oh, we're going to be an island and we're going to be the strongest, biggest island in the world, um, but that you get people around you, get people who you're in community with uh, to support your family and support your marriage and check in on you. And that when things get rough, because they're going to get rough, like this is messy. Um, like these are children who are dealing with, with neglect and abuse often from uh, the time that they were in the womb. Um, we want to make sure that, that you don't pick up the phone in, in desperate search for help uh, and get somebody on the other end who just goes, well, just give them back then. Um, cause we don't want that to be the testimony of, of Watermark Church. We certainly don't want it to be the testimony of Christ. Uh, and so make sure that you're inviting people in and we'll talk about that uh, a little bit more as well. So, um, prevention, family support, obviously recruitment and just asking people and, and inviting. This isn't something that God's like hammering over your head and saying, you got to do this. 
right? Uh, yes, caring for orphans is a biblical mandate, is biblical instruction. However, how you go about doing that uh, is often completely up to you and the Holy Spirit and just being obedient to how he's leading you and how he's provi- uh, provided for you. And then transition as well, because we have about 300 kids that age out of foster care in DFW every year. Um, and the statistics for those kids often, as they're, as they're aging out or transitioning out of foster care, uh, many of them are averaging eight placements before they age out. So when we called our agency, um, I, you didn't see it in my family's picture, but our oldest son is 24. Uh, he's given us three grandkids, and that's not in the brochures. They don't put that in there. Um, they don't say, hey, in your mid-30s, you might be grandparents. Um, and, uh, and yet, it's funny, it's okay, it's lap. Um, and yet, uh, when we called our agency, we said, hey, we think we're interested in adopting a, a boy between the ages of like 10 and 15. And they said, gosh, well, you know, let me look around here. I mean, any time we get an email for a child over the age of eight, we press delete. Because there are no families looking to adopt those kids. Um, and that crushed us. And yet it also reminded us that the church has been incredibly stagnant where we've kind of said, hey, we're interested in these babies, these cute, cuddly, you know, spit up babies. Um, Apparently, apparently we love changing diapers or something. I don't know what it is about us. But, um, but these teenagers, like, now we're going to let them go on their own. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we're wrapping around those teenagers as well. And we'll be working on, on efforts to, to support them and help them transition well and make sure that um, they've got mentors and job opportunities and things like that um, along the way. And then down on the bottom, there is just advocacy because advocating for children and families across the continuum of care. is just, there's every single point. Foster care is just this crazy intersection in life where we see um, kids come in and they're connected to the, the public school system. They're connected to the courts and they're, they're connected to police. And, and uh, I mean, just on and on and on and on of, of all these touch points where we can have impact in their lives. And so um, we want to make sure that we do that well as, as, uh, as we, as we move forward. Um, I want to talk about this just real briefly uh, and then talk about really what God's word says. But um, trauma is something that um, our kids are, are dealing with, their parents are often dealing with. And this is just kind of an, an image that I wanted you to be able to hold in your mind um, because it's one thing to have a kid who is just flipping out on you and you're going, I don't know what to do. Do I just yell as loud as they do? Do I yell over them? Do we, is this a yelling contest? I'm not sure what's happening here. Um, and, it's, and it's one thing to sit in on, you know, information meetings like this and get great information and even go and, and select an agency and get licensed and, and go through the trainings that they provide. And some of them are incredibly helpful. But whenever that child's actually in your home, that worksheet you filled out a few months ago about what you would do when a child was throwing a tantrum is not going to help right? But having an image like this in your mind of recognizing, man, this kid isn't just acting out for the sake of acting out. Um, This child is dealing with anger and frustration and all these emotions that they don't really even understand. Um, If for no other reason than uh, their brain looks like this. So this brain on the left is uh, a normal three-year-old's brain. Uh, just a a cross-section, a scan of a three-year-old's brain. And then obviously the one on the right is also a three-year-old who's experienced extreme neglect. 
because what neglect tells a child is you don't matter. Um, Abuse may tell a child, I hate you, but neglect tells a child, you don't matter. And so when somebody lovingly steps alongside them and says, you matter, you're worth more. Um, And they start to wrestle with some of the boundaries that you're going to put in place so that they can really start to grow and develop. Um, They're going to balk at that a bit. And uh, you're going to start to see some things and experience some things and hear some words that you're like, I'm not sure you should know that word. <laughs> um, and, it, and what it's done for me personally, I know this isn't necessarily like a, oh, you know, what's in it for me type of thing. But what it's done for me is it's, it's really ripped the facade off of my faith. Uh, because it, it's real easy to walk into church and just be fine, right? And just be okay. And we say it all the time. Hey, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm doing well. Like we do really good at managing our sin and just kind of like keeping it in the closet. And then when a kid comes along who's got their own stuff and it's just out all over the place and they start to get into your closet and your stuff starts to spill out, man, that doesn't feel so good. And the thing is, is that Christ came to redeem that stuff that you put in your closet and said, no, God, I've got this. Um, And that kid's not a scapegoat. That kid's not the problem or the reason why your stuff spilled out. Um, You managing it is. Uh, and so as we, as we talk about trauma, there's going to be lots of opportunities to just think about this more critically because so many of our kids, um, even in utero, right, uh, is maybe mom didn't get enough to eat or maybe mom was on drugs. And so their survival instincts are really well developed. And their thinking, like that cognitive ability to kind of work through and process issues and problems and use their words to express their emotions and they've got very little of that. Um, and so just having this in the back of your mind, because we want to make sure that, that, that kids are not just physically provided for, right? It, it's not that kids just need a home. Oh, like, oh, if we'll just give them a home or if we'll just give them food or we'll just give them clothing. Um, that's a piece of it. But for us as the body of Christ, uh, we understand that, that children aren't just bodies, right? That they also have a soul. And so we want to make sure that we're caring for their emotional and spiritual needs as well. Um, just a handful of passages. Uh, the, the terms fatherless and orphan are mentioned more than 50 times throughout the scriptures. And so I'm not going to run through all 50 of those. But I do want to highlight a few of these just to exemplify kind of, hey, this is why we do what we do. Um, so Leviticus, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 10, 18 through 19 uh, is, is really one of the first times that we see a biblical mandate or a biblical instruction for us to care for orphans. Um, and God's talking to the Israelites as Moses is standing on the banks of the Jordan as they're about to take on the promised land. And he basically says, look, you were once orphans. You were once foreigners in Egypt. And so take care of the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. So he, he, he doesn't necessarily just say, look, you're going to do it because I said so. He says, hey, you're going to do it because y- you were once orphans. Um, and so he compels us with empathy. He says, look, you, you were once lost. And so I want you to step in and care for the lost. In Leviticus 25, um, uh, the author is talking about the year of Jubilee. And it's actually kind of the first time that, that we see an instruction for the kinsman redeemer. And so you may be familiar with Ruth uh, and Boaz or Esther and Mordecai. 
those are kind of the examples of the kinsman redeemer that we recognize in scripture. Because what would happen is, is if a family was poor, uh, maybe dad or mom or kids would, would kind of sell themselves into slavery for a time so that they could pay their debts. But if they had a relative that would come along and redeem them and, and buy their freedom back, um, they would step in and, and, and care for them. And then when that year of Jubilee came back, they would, they would be restored. And so we want to make sure, again, just kind of going back to this and making sure that we're really grounded in this, is this isn't just about adoption. This isn't about just getting a kid into your home that you can love and care for. This is about restoring and redeeming a family, right, and communicating the gospel to them. Um, because that's one of the really difficult parts of foster care that I hear a lot is people who just say, gosh, I could never do it. I could never give them back. I mean, they'd be like my child. And in many ways, yes, they would be. Um, we are asking you to give of yourself and not reserve yourself to the point that you would treat a child that is not your child like they're your child. And yes, that's hard. Um, yes, it's hard for a child to be um, reunited with their family when you've poured into them. Um, however, if you're not doing this alone, and if you're recognizing things like the kinsman redeemer ethic that we find in scripture and understanding that, that you're a conduit for God's glory um, and you're growing kind of in your motivation, even if your motivation initially, as you just kind of walked in this room is, I just want to adopt. Like, I don't want to do foster care. Um, you can do that. I would encourage you towards that. Um, but as we step into foster care, there has to be that, that maintenance of this kind of dichotomy, I guess, of prioritizing reunification and restoration for this, this child to their birth family, as well as holding on to, you know what, if it's in their best interest for me to adopt them, um, then we'll do that. Um, Psalm 68, five through six is why we know that, that um, we're not inviting God into this. Uh, because it says that, that God is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows in his holy dwelling. He sets the lonely in families. He sets the lonely in families, okay? Um, and so when we brought our 21-year-old daughter home, uh, she was 17, and she'd kind of bounced around. And, uh, and there, uh, because we'd been fostering for a while and felt like God had, again, just kind of bent us towards his will, we understood God was, God was moving us towards where he was going. We weren't moving him. Um, and so, I mean, God goes before you, and it's, it, many times it's really difficult to, to find God's sovereignty in the mix. Some of you who are foster adoptive families in this room right now are going, yeah, I've experienced some hard stuff. And it's hard to, to trust that God is going before us and sees what's happening uh, in our midst because we're really struggling with this. Um, we're really trying to figure out, like, why would God let this happen? Why would God let this child go back to a place that we don't think is safe? Um, and so knowing that God is the father to the fatherless, not, not Bruce, right? Not you, not Kim. God is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows in his holy dwelling. Um, man, I'm like, I probably should have just limited this to like two verses. Um, <laughs> we'll jump down to James 127. Um, James 127 just says, religion that is pure and faultless is this. Uh, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Uh, and so know that, that when you step into this, as you're being faithful, uh, you're being faithful to what God is, finds as pure and faultless. 
I'll let you look up Isaiah one on your own and we can talk about that later. Um, I'm going to let Kim talk for a bit because my voice is going and, uh, I didn't anticipate pontificating quite as long as I already have. So are you finishing up something? Done. Done. Awesome. Apparently y'all send in some good questions. Yes. So, um, a lot of these, hopefully our next uh, couple of minutes will answer a lot of the questions for you. Um, but this is just the process of <clears throat> how a child co- goes from their family of origin and what that uh, journey looks like in general. So there's the initial phone call or email or online of a report of abuse or neglect Um, And that is screened by people in Austin to determine whether or not it meets the qualifications of actual abuse or neglect. And then if it does, it's forwarded to uh, an investigation worker. Um, And that worker is who goes and interviews the child, interviews the family, and makes a determination if there has been abuse or neglect in the home. Um, And depending on that, um, the case will go one of two places, um, if there's a reason to believe finding, that is. Um, So a little-known department in CPS actually is, their sole purpose is to keep families together and prevent the removal of children, and that's called family-based safety services. And all they do is work with the family in their home in order to better equip parents to care for their children. And those are not done in cases of severe abuse or neglect. Those are cases that are... um, it's where it's evident that maybe a lack of resources or poverty or whatever is at stake, and that's what's preventing the families from caring for their children. Um, if it is a, a case of severe abuse or neglect that does necessitate the removal of their children, then um, it'll go into a, um, the investigator will then remove the kids and place them either in a kinship placement or a foster placement. The first question an investigator will ask is, do you have any friends or family who can care for this child? And if they do, and if they pass a home study, um, then the child can go with fictive kin or actual kin, um, and that's called kinship placement. Um, If they do not, or if it's not a, a place that's appropriate, then the the, kid will, the child will go into foster care, and that's where um, all of where where we would come in. Um, all the while that they're in that purple stage, legal ongoing foster care, um, the family is still able to name kinship or a kin kinship placement, um, and they're always looking for a kinship placement. Um, the state is legally mandated to consider kinship um, up until 90 days after. Um, the parents' rights are terminated if it ends up going there. So um, um, if the case, um, so reunification is also a state mandate. A law, it's mandated by law that the, um, that the case is always heading towards reunification. Um, the law provides the families 12 months to um, complete services, and usually their services include um, parenting classes. If there's any kind of addiction involved, it includes, you know, addiction recovery. It includes um, stable work, stable home, that kind of thing. And so parents have about a year to get that together. And um, 
the, the case is heading towards reunification. Um, at some point, usually about eight, eight months in or so, if, the, if there's no kinship relatives found, then the state, the um, CPS worker will be looking at what their permanency plan is. Are we looking at this child um, being reunified? Like, are the parents doing what they need to do? Are they staying clean? Are they, you know, working? Are they, you know, showing progress? Or are we looking at, you know, this relative that they've named out in East Texas or whatever? Or are we looking at adoption by a non-relative? And they let the court know at, along the way that this case looks like it's heading towards reunification or this case looks like it's heading um, to, reunif to um, adoption by a non-relative. And if that's the case, then, um, then the, the, the current foster family always has the first, that's their first um, ask is, are you interested in adopting this child? And so, because obviously the goal is that the, the kids have as few placements as possible. And I know one of the questions was, why do kids have multiple placements? And that's because it's hard. Um, kids come in with a lot of baggage and things that you don't expect. And sometimes parent, foster parents either um, are un, unprepared or unequipped or... Um, or just don't realize it, and so they just call and say, hey, you need to come and get this kid. And so then they'll go to the next placement and the next placement. And so that's what, that's why kids have an average of, did you say eight? Placements? Kids that age out have an average yeah. of eight. Kids that achieve um, adoption or reunification in our state, um, it's a little over two. Yeah. Two so, placements. Um, and I would say that the, the, um, the older the kids are, the, more, the higher that number goes. Um, so um, then once the, the state decides that adoption by a non-relative is the, the goal, is going to be the plan, um, parental rights are terminated, and then there's a 90-day waiting period um, after parental rights are terminated that um, adoption can be finalized. Yeah, there's a number of things that um, we're leaving out. Uh, just because it's like really getting into the weeds on things like, you know, what about insurance? What, you know, how are, how are kids, and what about school and yeah. all those kinds of things. So we can answer some of those questions, but um, we didn't necessarily dedicate a slide to them. Um, and so, of course, there are a lot of um, ways to, to serve, like um, the verse James says, you know, to, to care for orphans. And of course, most obviously is fostering or adopting. And um, this is just the process of what, if you choose to go the foster adoption route, um, the process in a nutshell. Um, so you would obviously make that decision and then select an agency. Um, so you can go straight through CPS. You don't have to go to a private agency, but we always recommend that you do because it's it's another layer of support, and it's a layer of support that's specific to the foster family. So the, um, the children come, and they have a caseworker advocating for them. They have a, a, an ad litem, so a lawyer that advocates for them. They sometimes have CASA that advocates for them, and we'll talk more about CASA here in a second. Um, and the foster family 
you've got, you know, if you know someone, you might have some information, but the, the, the um, agencies are able to kind of be the mediator between you and CPS between to help you understand the process, and they're really there for you and your support. So we definitely always recommend going through an agency, but it's not required. And just to tack on to that, the, the packet that you've got there actually lists out virtually all of the, the licensed child placing agencies. Um, you would have picked it up in the back as you came in. Virtually all the, the um, child placing agencies in Dallas-Fort Worth are in that packet so that you can contact those. Uh, we invited some of the ones that, that we really work with and, and trust and have uh, had relationships with that are here. So um, while I wouldn't say they're the only agencies that you might work with, that there are some other good agencies, these are the ones that we really love to work with uh, who we've built a relationship with. So um, we definitely encourage you to, to connect with Buckner and, and CK and CPS. And just a quick tidbit about, I mean, there's obviously a lot of, a lot more than two agencies listed in your packet. Just a couple things, just trial and error in, in selecting an agency, um, is just to, to think about a few things. Do you, do you want them to be faith-based or not? Do you want them to, and, and for us, I think it's, it's a huge, um, it's a big deal. We actually were not, we were licensed with an agency that was not faith-based, and, um, when things got tough, we really regretted it because we would have loved to know that our agency was praying for us, that our worker was praying for us, and I know for a fact that that is a big part of what, and that's why we love working with Buckner and, and Covenant Kids because prayer is such a big part of what they do for their families, for their kids. Um, also, location. Not only will you have... So 32, 34 hours of training to complete before you um, foster or license. Um, but you have ongoing training throughout the year. So, again, trial and error. We picked a place in Hearst. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm just, just, we're just going to be, I'll be the model of what not to do. Um, but, um, and then, so I feel like there's, I'm missing one. Another agency. But I think faith-based and location are, are big ones. Oh, the, the length of, the of time. Um, some agencies have two weekends where you can get all the training knocked out. Some agencies take it slow and want to get to know you. So just um, the, 30, the 32 hours, that is. Um, some do it over 10 weeks. Some do it, you can literally be done in two weeks. So that's the other thing. Yeah, on average, that, that time to get licensed, at least in my experience, is somewhere on like a three to six month kind of window. A lot of that's on you because you've got to get a bunch of your official documentation together and your marriage license and um, you've got to get a fire inspection and, you know, just on down the list. And that's what part of the, you know, completing the training and paperwork is about. Um, assimilate a support team, I would say make sure you're doing that along the way. And part of that can be where your support team is actually coming to the training with you. Um, establishing a couple friends that can be respite providers for you is a huge deal. And having that where they can, because they require almost as much training as a foster parent. And so just having them come along with you to do the training is huge. Um, having licensed or approved babysitters, so having a group of friends that are willing to submit, you know, for fingerprints, and um, there's just, it's not as stringent as respite, um, and just the difference between respite and babysitting. Babysitting is under four hours ish. I can't. It's been a minute, um, and respite is overnight over forty eight hours. So to be seventy two. Okay. 
Um, so there's different levels of support that you'll need, and not, and most importantly, um, if you go to Watermark, just having processing with community, making sure that they um, are on board, that they are wanting to help support you. Um, a great book um, for community to go through is called All in Orphan Care, and it's by Jason Johnson, and it's a fantastic resource. It's six chapters, so it can be done in six weeks, and it just helps your community group just really process that decision with you and be educated about it as well. Um, and then the once you've completed your training, you'll do a home study. Nobody wears a white glove, so you don't have to like hire a maid to clean your house or anything. But it's just their opportunity, the agency's opportunity to really get to know you and to make sure that, that your home is a safe place. And so they get all in your business um, and interview you for you know a couple hours. If you have children, they will they'll ask your children a few questions as well. Um, and then they go back and turn that interview into about a 20-page legal document. Um, and That's not intimidating at all. <laughs> that was my favorite part. I'm just kidding. So, um, and, then, um, and then once you finish the home study and are approved, then you, part of the home study process also is um, letting them know and just talking to them about um, children that you feel like would be a good fit in your family. And I, I want to touch on this because I think it can be probably um, one of the hardest parts of the process um, in saying yes or no that I think our family can help a child like this because saying yes is really easy but saying no is really hard but um, you know saying no to you know a child that harms animals or you know to the just a myriad of, of, of things, of behaviors that kids who have been um, from tough places can come with. Um, but just being able to be honest about that and be um, truthful, because like I said, the last thing we want is for a, um, for a child to come into your home and for, it, for you to not be equipped and that to result in another placement disruption. And so... Um, that part of the process, just to kind of be praying over and for, is tough, but I think it, it requires um, a lot of processing and, and honesty, too. Um, and then once you've finished all of that and the agency knows what age range you're looking for, what behavior um, behaviors you're, you're able to accept, then you get um, the phone call, and if it's a low legal risk situation, there might be a few visits beforehand, if it's like us, um, for Tatiana, I was cooking dinner, which in and of itself was like a first. Um, <laughs> and um, foiled that plan. So it was 5.30, cooking dinner, and she was at our house by 8. So, um, and they usually know very little. I knew her name, gender, and approximate age. So... Um, just knowing that's what it can look like, and it can also be 5.30 in the morning. It could be overnight, that kind of thing. So if you're willing to accept emergency placements, that can be part of the process as well. Yeah. So I'm going to invite our panel members to come up now um, and kind of just talk real briefly about some of the other ways to volunteer um, and get connected. So some of you are in this room, and you're like, look, I'm, I'm not here to foster adopt. I, like, I know that God... Um, 
means and intends for us to care for the vulnerable. And so I want to step into that. I just, I'm not in a place or maybe I don't have the space in my home to actually uh, open up. And so here's some other ways that you can volunteer. By no means is this all of the ways, um, but the tapestry ministry here at Watermark is going to continue to grow. We're likely going to start some support efforts uh, at the beginning of the year that we hope will be a great way to wrap around families and really make sure that, that both kids and parents, bio parents, kinship parents, adoptive and foster parents are healthy and ready to go, um, and that kids are also processing and healing from some of the stuff that they've dealt with. Uh, and so we're going to start working on that continuum of care so that, so that Watermark is responding uh, in really a holistic, comprehensive way. Um, we've invited Dallas Casa here. Uh, Casa stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. And um, here in Dallas County, they're friend of the court. And so that means that they get to show up at court. And if the judge so decides, they, they can ask them like, hey, you know, what does this kid want? But what Casa does is they're the voice of that child. So a foster parent tends to have kind of our own particular bias of what we desire. Um, a bio parent obviously has kind of what they desire. CPS is kind of like trying to make everybody work together. Um, and even a CPA, like, like Covenant Kids, CK or, or Buckner, um, that, you know, they're working with the foster parent. But Cost is coming in and saying, look, I, I've talked to this kid and asked this kid what they want. And I'm advocating on what I think is in their best interest and that alone. Um, and so that's a volunteer opportunity uh, that, that you get to go and spend time with that child. You get to go to court whenever they meet every 90 days or so. And, um, and again, just advocate for that kid. And if that kid moves from one house to another, you move with them. So you get to be their advocate all throughout the journey. And even sometimes after they, they go back home, you get to go and, and, and follow up. And so um, I talked to uh, Lynn, who's here with CASA. Lynn, are you in the room? Nope. Um, so uh, she said that, that they, they need 400 more CASAs um, to make sure that every kid from Dallas County who's removed into foster care has somebody that's uniquely advocating for them. And so that would be a huge blessing if you, if you feel led to, to jump in on that. And just real quick on that, um, in my time serving at, at CPS and private foster care agencies, I had two cases that had a CASA worker. And what a difference they made. Um, just being able, and as a CPS worker, I sometimes resented CASA workers because the court, I felt like, listened to them over they listened over me. But that's just how impactful and how much the court trusts CASA workers. And so if you, if you feel like it's not doing as much as if you were to foster or adopt, don't think that because the court, court puts a lot of weight into what CASA says. Awesome. And then City Square is an organization uh, here in Dallas that has, actually does a whole lot, but they have a unique program called TRAC, which stands for Transition Resource Action Center. And they have the contract with our state to provide transitional services to the kids who are aging out of foster care across our entire region. That's that 300 kids number that I mentioned before. Um, and so they provide mentoring services and, and things like that that we can come alongside and be a part of that uh, and really help make sure that those kids are transitioning well. Uh, because those kids, uh, they, they have, as they age out, they actually have a free college education available to them all the way through a doctorate. That is awesome. And less than 5% take advantage of it. Um, and, and a lot of that is because kids are just bouncing from one home to another to another. So they're not really worried about making grades. They're worried about, am I going to get to eat tomorrow? Um, 
And when they get a job, they're not really worried about keeping that job as much as like, just what's going on with me today? Um, and so walking alongside those kids and, and making sure that um, they, they've got mentors, we hope to develop some things alongside track just in a partnership with them because I've gotten to work with them for a long time and uh, see the efficacy of the work that they do. Uh, and so they're out there as well if you want to stop by and just say, hey, how can I get involved? How can I help? That's not a real easy one to just kind of plug in. I mean, some of the volunteer opportunities that we have, you can just kind of dip your toe in the water, and that's really more of like run to the end of the pier and jump in head first type of thing, all right? So um, anyway, um, so there are some others, and, and uh, I want to encourage you, um, if, especially if you've got your phone on you, if you'd go like the Tapestry page on Facebook, it's just Tapestry. I think it's on your handout. It's like Tapestry WCC if you're searching on Facebook, um, and just like it. We're going to use that a lot to just communicate opportunities and want to make sure that you have that opportunity to stay in touch with us. So I've yammered on long enough. Um, we want to talk to some of our friends and, and experts in this. So would y'all take just a minute, I'll put your names up here, but would y'all take just a minute and introduce yourselves and just kind of briefly talk about like what your experience is, like what, what brought you here today? Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, my name is Ryan Howell and my wife is back there in the booth named Chris. And uh, we began fostering in 2009. Uh, we had two biological kids at the time and my wife said that she would like to uh, foster. And so... Uh, I was reluctant at first and agreed to go to uh, Intro to Adoption here that uh, Watermark was hosting. And through the course of, of taking that class, learning more, we decided that we were going to foster. So uh, we were licensed uh, within about uh, six months and uh, had placement uh, in July. And then uh, we were one of the rare families that uh, our first placement or actually became, uh, we, we were able to adopt them. So they never left our home. Uh, and 16 months later, uh, they were all housed. So we went from a family of four to a family of seven overnight in July of 2009 as we said yes to a sibling set of three kids, a three-year-old, an 18-month-old, and uh, a baby that was still in the hospital. Yeah. It's that top of that roller coaster when you're like, woo! <laughs> Just plunging down the hill. Um, awesome. <laughs> David? Yeah. So my name is David. I... Uh... I was put into uh, CPS care when I was five, around four or five, um, and it was a it was a scary adjust, adjustment just because like um, initially I had no idea what was going on. Um, I mean, I know there's things that people have told me like after the fact, like this happened, this happened, and but uh, yeah, I just generally don't remember a lot of what happened, but. Um, yeah, I went. I went to initially um, relatives, and then moved in with uh, a family that ended up adopting me, um, which was really awesome. Uh, we can get into that later, but um, yeah. yeah, that's just generally my story. Um, yeah, that's good. Amy, I'm Amy Baker, and um, you'll hear me. So I'm married to Michael, he's in the back, and we have four children. We have three biological children, 14-year-old daughter, 12-year-old son, and 10-year-old son. And um, we now have a two-year-old little girl who came into our home a little, well, a year and a half ago, almost. Um, and our story is we would have said our family was complete. We would have said we were content where we were, but yet we had an extra room, and we knew that foster care was biblical. We knew it was God had laid it on our hearts, and so we just started the process really like, okay, Lord, what do you have for us? Never intending to adopt, truly. 
and um, sweet little girl came into our home at 19 months old. And, you know, it's kind of the Lord directs your steps. You make your plan, and then yeah. the Lord guides away. And um, quickly, she became one of us. And just in about a week, she'll legally become one of us. So um, pretty cool. Yeah. Yancy? Hi. My name's Yancy Carrion, and <laughs> my fan club. Um, a fan I club. Am... Man, that's awesome. Nobody else has a fan club. <laughs> Uh, I'm a case manager with CK Family Services. I've been with them for about two and a half years now. Um, but I have been working with kids and in the social work field for about 16 years. Don't try to guess my age. I know you're trying to do it right now. Um, so um, my first encounter with kids in the system was at a shelter. And um, it was in Amarillo, Texas, and kids would go there when they didn't have homes, foster homes to place them in. And I just felt like this is what the Lord has called me to do. I need to step in and I need to help. And so um, I have a degree in human services, and I've worked at residential facilities, juvenile justice system, um, and shelters, all kinds of areas. But um, prior to working with CK, I was an investigator at CPS, and that was by far the hardest job I've ever had to do. Um, it's, I'll get into more detail, but it's, as a worker, um, it's really hard taking people's kids. Um, nobody wants to do it. And the first time I had to do it, I cried. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. So that's just, but through that, the Lord has just shown me like um, a heart for bios. I love foster families. I have about 18 families right now on my caseload and 18 kids. And I am just very fortunate. I have a really good relationship with all my families. So Awesome. So um, I'm going to throw the questions up so everybody else can see them. But, um, so feel free to reference that as well. But uh, just kind of asking each of you, and feel free to just answer in whatever order, but what fears did you wrestle with when you first began? Like what were the things that you just were like, ugh? Yeah. Okay. So like basically what I said um, when I worked at CPS and the first removal, I'm a mom and um, I can't imagine like anybody coming and taking my son. And so having to do that was just heart-wrenching. Um, but, you know, you got to keep the kids safe. And then just seeing them with really good foster parents and um, what fears did you wrestle with when you began? I don't know. I'm just very thankful to be in this area in Dallas now because of the foster families that I do work with. Um, love the Lord, and it is their passion and their ministry, and no matter what the situation is, whether the kids go home or um, they get to adopt, they um, take every day to love on them and care for them. It's really good to see the families minister to the children. Awesome. Anybody else? Um, I would say my fears, and it really was, was just the unknowns. I mean, we sat through all the training. We you know, get all this information, and you hear the horror stories, and there are. I mean, it's hard, and there are so many unknowns, and so I did. I wrestled just with the f fear of the unknown, um, and there are. There's a ton of unknowns that go with foster care, but yet it's worth it. <laughs> yeah, um, I'd agree with you. Yeah, um, even from my perspective as uh, a foster kid, uh, going from <laughs> one place to another, uh, it it's a huge unknown, like, because you don't know where you're going to be for the rest of your life. Or, um, for me personally, like, the biggest thing I struggled with was um, 
wondering if I was ever going to really fit somewhere. And um, just like if I was going to be treated as a person or just something uh, too, too broken to really care about. And so, um, yeah, there's just, yeah. And like, like my mom has said, uh, I came in with a lot of baggage. So just um, wondering if uh, the family I go to is going to help me work through that or just it's just going to be something that I'm going to carry with me for the rest of my life. I think I had two primary fears. One, uh, at the time, we had a six-year-old biological child and a four-year-old biological child. And just wrestling with what was it going to look like, bringing uh, other children into our home, how was it going to affect them, um, concerns about fear for their own safety, just, again, because of the unknowns that have already been spoken of. And then, uh, secondly, was just calling our parents who live 1,200 miles away and saying, we're going to walk into this, and there's a good chance because we've said yes to pretty much uh, anybody that the state may call for us, uh, that we may have children that don't look anything like me. And, uh, and just trying to have those conversations preemptively and be able to have those in a healthy way and uh, prepare their hearts. And I'm a control freak by nature, so wanting to kind of have those, those conversations up front were uh, something that I felt I had to do. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, just for Amy and for Ryan, so I asked y'all to come up, and we've talked about this, but I asked them to come because uh, Amy's only been in this not very long, and Ryan's uh, actually had some time, uh, some years under his belt, and so I wanted y'all to see kind of the juxtaposition of just like what it's like when you're brand new, and then also just kind of what it's like a little bit further down the road, but what was the process like? Like becoming foster adoptive parents, being foster adoptive parents, uh, even from the point of like the first phone call you got to the point of, okay, we're going to adopt this kid. Uh, yeah, so for, for us, as I already said, my wife uh, said she wanted to, uh, to do this. When, I, when the Lord finally brought my heart to the same place my wife's was, uh, I felt like we wanted to do this right away. So we sought out an agency who had a short timeline that was faith-based, and, uh, and that happened to be Covenant Kids. And it was we, within about two weeks we had the classes done, but then you, you're going through uh, visits in your home, making sure that it's, it's kind of child-proofed. You've got fire protection and all of uh, your background checks and your home visits and all that done. So we started that process in about March, and uh, by July we were licensed. And so we... I got a phone call about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We'd been open for about two days. And, uh, and then by 5 o'clock, we had uh, two children in our home, and uh, the third one was still in the hospital. And so throughout that process, we had a community group. We were members here at Watermark who were incredibly kind to us and generous to us. And then there were other community groups, uh, some of whom are in this room today, who uh, I don't know that I've ever properly said thank you, who just adopted us because they were friends of ours, saw what we were going through, and said, uh, you guys need help, and, and we're here to help. And, and this is crazy. We had uh, one gal who lived in our neighborhood, and she would come over every night at Cry 30, is what we called it. It's after dinner. <laughs> kind of after dinner when you're, you're putting your dishes away, you got three kids to bathe and everything else. And she would just hold a baby and rock her which for us was huge because it gave us four hands freed up to do all the things we needed to do. And she loved it because she got to hold an infant for an hour and a half. And so just those little things without the body of Christ coming around us. Uh, th there's six months of my life that I don't remember, uh, but I didn't have to worry because we were propped up by countless numbers of people. 
so our process was really pretty simple. Um, it was definitely just from the beginning, it was the Lord laying it on our hearts. And um, we went from, I mean, a relatively calm life, a family of five, not that three kids aren't, you know, busy, but to just opening it to the unknown and just saying, okay, God, use us. And so uh, we started the process, started the training in November of 2015. We kind of went fast at the beginning, took a couple months off, then officially got licensed in April of 2016 and um, opened up our home to respite for those first couple of months because we had a family trip coming up and um, we did it. Anyway, there were just minutes. We did respite. It was amazing and it was a great way to... Um, let our bigger kids, our biological kids, kind of get little ones in the home and see that. So then in uh, June of 2016, we got a call from our agency about a little girl that was already in care. So we were open to emergency placements, but we did not get an emergency placement. So we had about 10 days to prepare for her. Um, and then on July 8th of 2016, literally CPS shows up at you know our door with a little one. And um, I would say the process was really pretty simple. The transition was pretty pretty simple. I mean, you've got a kiddo that has been ripped once again from a home. Um, that's all they've, you know, they came from, she came from such rough stuff to go into a home that was somewhat stable for a couple of weeks and then to be moved to our house. That's just a lot of chaos, but fun chaos and love. Um, so, I mean, I would say for her it was hard but for us it was we were on the easy end because we just got to love her and um make her just a part of our family so um marriage wise I would say it wasn't that stressful um we, we worked together we had older kids that could help too but we just kind of jumped right in um for our biological kids we talked about it a ton we prayed about it a ton they knew what we were doing uh, before you know our little girl ever came in our home and so for us, I'm not going to act like it was just super easy, but it was not the horror stories that I'd heard, truly. And um, so, yeah. Does that answer? Is that? Yeah. No, that's good. And we're still I, one of the things that I think y'all both kind of echoed, and then David said this as well, is, is and something that I hear all the time from prospective families, they're like, oh, gosh, we think we want to foster. We think we want to adopt. But, it, like, it would just hurt. It would just hurt so bad. And I'm, I'm not sure I could deal with that loss. And so many times we approach this from our own perspective as an adult, as a, as a faithful, God-fearing adult uh, of how this is going to impact us. And we often don't think of it from the perspective of a traumatized, neglected, abused child. Um, and and in, I know this isn't what we're saying out loud, but it is in fact what we're saying is I couldn't deal with the pain and the frustration or the trauma that working with the system might cause but this child can, right? Um, and so being, being mindful of where our kids are coming from, because even if the process is, you know, like Amy's, where it's just like, you know, just, it wasn't that bad. I mean, maybe it was a lot of training classes or it was a lot of paperwork, but, you know, at the end of the day, it just, it's just kind of a lot of paperwork. It was just hoops we had to jump through and get, get to. But, I mean, this child and the things that they went through um, and, and just meeting them where they're at, uh, was huge. So Yancey, I'm going to ask you a little bit more cause I know that, uh, you've just got a wealth of information and experience. So like what, what's been your perspective? Like what have you seen, not just from like the work that you've done with kids and, you know, even the residential center and things like that, but with families of like things that families need to understand and, and really grasp. Okay. Um, I think that 
most important thing that families need to understand is that no two cases are the same. Um, that kid, that they, they, they come in the same, may look like the same wrapping, abuse, neglect, but they're never the same. Um, I've never had two cases exactly the same. Um, kids go home. Uh, you could get a first placement that you adopt. You could have five placements um, that all go home. They just, they never look the same. But one thing that is always the same is that these kids need a loving, healthy adult in their lives. And you guys can make the difference. Um, I have had the opportunity to see that at CK because we have awesome staff, um, great training to just like, help guide foster parents through that process. And I've seen firsthand little ones um, to come in with, you think two-year-olds don't have issues, um, try feces on the wall and things like that. Um, and just being able to step in and work with foster parents and a child's life completely turned around. They need y'all. They need healthy, God-fearing, loving adults in their lives. Yeah. Um, I think some of the things that, that we've seen, so, um, like, we just thought, gosh, just kids need love, right? It's like, we hear that a lot. I was talking about some of, the, like, just the Christian euphemisms that we use. Um, and, in, and in a way, that's totally true. They do just need love. Except the kind of love that we often think about isn't the kind of love that landed Jesus on the cross, right? Um, and so that kind of sacrifice is the kind of love that God's talking about. And when we're just kind of coming in saying, hey, let's just do some nice things and, you know, so on and so forth, God's like, no, <laughs> this, we, have, we have not begun uh, yet to truly understand what faith is. Um, because so oftentimes it's like, it's just easier to do projects and to volunteer and do things where we just dip our toe in the water and then, you know, sort of um, our need to felt needed as opposed to what are the actual needs that are going to make an impact? Let's just not talk about things that we can do on the surface. Um, let's talk about what's going to be life-changing for this family. Uh, what's going to be life-changing for this child? And let's not just talk about doing it for a little bit or once, um, but how do we sustain that? Yeah. How do we grow that? Um, because there, there are some statistics... Um, that, that aren't quite as um, encouraging, to be honest. Um, statistically, 50% of foster parents no longer foster one year after their first placement. And that's not because they adopt. It's because they feel isolated and they burn out. Um, and so when you hear me and you hear our, our, our panel up here talk about, hey, look, don't do this alone. I'm not saying that as an empty threat. I'm not saying that as encouragement. I'm telling you, don't do this alone. Um, you're a part of a body for a reason. Um, I, I agree. I just want to add on to that. Bruce. Yeah. Um, I have foster families that come through with literally 10, 15 babysitters on their list, and they're like, we have a lot of friends. And I'm like, that's great. Um, and Bruce is right. You have to have the support because you will get burnt out. It is a hard job. Parenting is hard. Parenting kids from trauma is hard. It's really hard. And you do need the support. Um, would you talk, and Kim, chime in too, of, of just, uh, and even, you know, any of y'all, but just some of the things just about the system 
right? Of just like, what is it like working with or in the system of foster care? Imagine your head spinning and falling off. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's like. Just kidding. Um, so, um, I didn't man. prep you for this. I'm sorry. <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> what it's like. Um, there's lots of rules, policies, standards, um, and it's, I see my foster parents get really frustrated and struggle with, like, all the minimum standards, and they're like, we just want to love this kid, and I'm like, and I know you're doing an awesome job, but we got, you know, there's so much that goes with that. Um, go ahead. What were you? I was just, while you're still thinking, um, I would say it is a broken system. system yes. Um, and there are decisions that are made that you're not going to get that the court says is for the best interest of the child, and you're like, how? And so I think just that that lack of control for a lot of us and the lack of understanding, like who in their right mind, much less a very well-educated school, you know, judge would send them to this family or send them to that relative. And I think um, just the the growth in relying and trusting on the Lord to know that, um, you know, one of the things that I, that we really um, camped out in is that the Lord has ordained every single per, um, judge every single attorney to be in that case. And so just trusting that the Lord had a plan and a purpose. And I think that was probably one of the biggest takeaways for us, especially when things got tough, just um, our reliance and trust on the Lord, even when things didn't make sense or things didn't work out the way that we wanted it to. But um, it just, it's a broken system. It's a, you know, it's, it's a broken world that we live in that requires this system that seems to not help at times. Um, so, yeah. Do you have uh, anything to add? Yeah, yeah if I could. go ahead, me. Uh, when you say yes uh, to fostering or adoption, you're not just saying yes to the kids that may come into your home. You're saying yes to every relationship that is tied to that, that case. So, caseworker for the agency, caseworker for CPS, any attorney that you're going to interact with, the judge on a limited basis if, if it comes to that. And so, you, you have a responsibility to represent Christ wherever you are. And if you go into it with that perspective uh, and you are kind and gracious and self-controlled and realize, uh, as Yancey said, it's really hard from their perspective. And if you can have that kind of compassion that you're one of 18 cases that she needs to come and say hi to uh, at least once a month, uh, then your heart of compassion grows. It, it is really hard from every perspective, not just yours. 40, 40 cases. Yeah. 40? Did you say 40? 40. 40. I thought you said 18. No, I have 18 with CK. When I was at CPS as investigator, I had 40. Well, there you go. Yeah. 40 families. Yoinks. That wasn't kids. Yeah. We have seen that just in our year and a half as we have taken that attitude as well, that we are not just here to serve our little girl. We want, we've had a couple of CPS caseworkers, we've had investigators, we've had attorneys in our home, and we just want our home to be a place where they see Christ. And, um, I think it makes a difference. I mean, it's definitely a place where I think Christians should be. I mean, these people are dealing with hard, hard stuff. And they, a lot of times foster parents are actually out to kind of get CPS because they feel like CPS is looking to remove their kiddo. And that's, we're here for the best interest of their child, of this child. And I feel like the CPS workers are as well. I mean, they are dealing with the bio families, the bio grandparents, bio, I mean, it's 
hard, hard job. So I do. I feel like dealing with this broken system is um, just where we should be, like just how we should be reaching out and loving on these workers because they're coming in our homes. Like you get them yeah. face-to-face for at least an hour a month, but right. really a lot more usually. Were you going to say something else? I was just going to mention like um, that – CPS is really moving forward in family reunification. That's, it's always been the goal, but they're really, really pushing for that. And so also in that same mind, they're opening the door in the future to have foster parents um, helping in that process. I won't go into details, but um, our agency is the first agency that I've worked with that encourages foster parents to build a positive relationship with bio families because it it turns out to be more positive for the kids. I have, can I give an example? Um, So um, I have a family that um, they moved, but they they got a little baby and um, they had him for about six months, no, they had him for about six weeks and then he went with um, bio families um, through a kinship placement that broke down, but they had built a positive relationship with BioMom. And so BioMom was like, please put him back with that foster family. They requested, or she requested it. And so um, CPS placed, it, placed him um, back with the family. Well, um, the case, as it progressed, um, mom was doing really well, did all her services, got a job, and um, baby went home with her. Well, um, prior to that, they, CP, my family asked the worker, can we take him over there and drop him off rather than the CPS worker picking him up? And because they had had him for six months, they had a bond with him and they just wanted the smoothest transition for him so that he still felt safe. Um, and so when they dropped him off, they're like, it was so good. Cause we got to see that she lived in a decent neighborhood. It wasn't scary. She wasn't scary. Um, but she needed a washer and dryer and a stove. And they went back to their church and they advocated for her and their church came together and bought mom a washer and dryer and stove and had it delivered to her house. Awesome. So, yeah. Yeah, we, um, when we had our youngest three join our family, we found out um, that the, the family that lived directly across the street was a second cousin of our kids. Um, and when we went to the pool, this family that our kids had come from was this ginormous family um, that unfortunately was in that generational cycle of violence and addiction. And so despite the fact that they had over 30 relatives within like a one mile radius of our house, um, none of those relatives were able to take care of these kids. But when we went to the public school, uh, the, the public pool every summer, um, we'd end up running into some of them. And as we're at the grocery store just walking through, my wife would run into their grandmother because she worked at the grocery store. And when we went out to eat, sometimes our waiter or waitress was an aunt or an uncle. Um, and so we had all kinds of interactions with our kids' extended family. And that became this like beautiful way for us to say, hey, look, we didn't just get into this to take your kids. Um, we want to see restoration in your family. And we want that to be a part of what it looks like at Watermark. Not just that we have a whole bunch of adoptive families here, but that we have a whole lot of foster families and adoptive families and kinship families and birth families 
who started coming here because they were loved well, because somebody said, you know what, you're worth more. Um, you're worth loving. Uh, you're worth being a part of this community. Hey, David, I'm going to ask you to share um, just a little bit about the experience that you do remember yeah. uh, in being in foster care and even just kind of the transition to being adopted and kind of what some of the stuff that you thought about and, and went through. Yeah, so in my experience, um, like I said, CPS came into my life when I was about four or five. Um, so I was, uh, just a little bit of background, I was born in San Antonio, so I'm not super far from home, but um, so I ended up going to a shelter facility in uh, Converse, Texas. Uh, I'm not super solid on time frames or whatnot, but I was there for a little while. They tried to reintegrate me back with my mother. Um, it wasn't working, so they sent me back, and then I think they tried like one more time, and she still wasn't uh, progressing in what she needed to do and getting her life on track. So they... Um, and so the judge terminated her rights, um, uh, her parental rights over me. Um, and so that was, um, even though I knew she wasn't like the best of people, that still hurt uh, me personally because, um, I mean, she was, she was uh, my mom. Um, I mean, you still want that relationship. Um, so... Um, they placed me with some relatives of mine. I think they were like second cousins or something. And uh, they lived in Houston, so they drove me out to Houston. And um, I lived with them for uh, about four years. Um, uh, and around around the end of it, I decided, like, I don't think this is a really good fit because um, they... I don't know. I felt I felt like I was to blame for a lot of the things that went wrong around the house. So, uh, so I was just stuck in the cycle of feeling like everything was my fault, um, and nobody really cares. So, um, they they let my caseworker know, and um, they put me back out there for um, for adoption, um, and. Uh, the Lumpkins, they uh, they graciously welcomed me into their home, and um, it was that that transition was a little more scarier than um, going from San Antonio to Houston, because uh, well, <laughs> it, <laughs> so um, it was because of um, I I was on a plane ride like on my own. Um, 12 years old, like, not really, and then I realized, like, halfway through the plane ride, I had no idea what these people looked like, or who, would I, who I was supposed to look for, so, um, I was walking out of the terminal, and, uh, just happened to have my dad, who's back there, uh, holding up a piece of paper with my name printed across it, and that was, uh, really awesome, um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, went home. This was uh, October 9th of 2010. Um, and so I went I went to their house and um, met Toddy, uh, Jonathan, their, their son. Um, and I could pretty much tell right off the bat, like, 
something was going to be different about this this placement. Um, and I, I lived with them for uh, six months before uh, before um, well, we decided like yeah this this is a good fit. Um, and so uh, we decided he was a keeper. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So um, April. <laughs> Um, was it April 28th, I think? Um, yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. I'm, I don't know why, but I'm still really, I still have a really hard time remembering the exact day in April. All I know is that it was in April 2011 that, um, we did a over the phone, um, court, court hearing and, um, with a judge down in San Antonio and, uh, we, uh, yeah, we finalized everything. I officially became a, a lumpkin. Um, yeah, um, and so that, that was that was pretty much my whole experience. Um, the last seven years have um, there have been a lot of rocky parts, uh, just from uh, like my mom said, like the emotional baggage that I brought in. Um, it. Uh, a couple of times I, I kind of flipped the house's world upside down and just um, brought in a lot of drama and whatnot. Uh, but the the most amazing part of it was uh, my, my mom and dad just walking with me every step of the way, like never leaving my side, just showing as much support as possible. And that's something I'm like really grateful for. That's awesome. Thanks, man. Um, just as we kind of wrap up this piece and kind of transition into a lot of the, the questions and stuff that y'all have been sending in, Kim's been like rifling through them and making sure that we get uh, to the ones that are asked frequently as well as just some of the ones that, that we think are really poignant and important for y'all to, to hear us uh, on. Um, maybe just share like one insight, uh, something that just comes to mind that you say, like if I had a chance to just sit down with any one of y'all and say, hey, this is something that you've got to grasp. This is something that you've got to know, even if it's just reiterating something we've already said, just to drive the point home again. <laughs> Yancey says Ryan has to start. <laughs> I got to start. Uh, I would say uh, the education is never over. Uh, so I've, I find um, events like this, uh, if you're in, uh, if you choose to become licensed to foster or adopt, taking part in classes, just the reminders of what Bruce already said, uh, the, the experience that our kids have had when they walk through trauma, uh, time does not necessarily heal that. It's time in healthy relationships that heals that. And so don't assume that over time uh, it should start to look different because it's been six months or it's been a year. Uh, th there are triggers for our kids at times that uh, if, if I can sit with my wife and say, what changed? Uh, we can kind of put the pieces together and realize, oh, that, that's the difference, and it's tied to something here. And so that keeping, uh, keeping myself educated, talking with other adopted families, allows my heart of compassion to be renewed over and over again. It's, that, that is a requirement for me to be a great parent, and I fail at it as often as I'm good at it. My wife will attest to that. I mean, I guess for me, one of the things that 
I would like to stress on is um, like like Nancy said, like um, having some reintegration back with the biological family is a, a great help. Um, uh, me personally, I have two older siblings that I lost contact with um, over the years. Um, so, uh, so my older brother I haven't seen for around 15 years. My sister I haven't seen around 10 years. And um, one of the things that uh, I kind of asked of my parents when I came to them was to help me get back in touch with them. Uh, because, um, you know, I've wanted to be able to have that relationship with my siblings. Um, and recently, over the summer, uh, we finally got to uh, get in touch with uh, my my sister and through her, my brother, and uh, went down to San Antonio to meet up with them. And that was uh, amazing, just one of the highlights of the summer. You know, I would say probably my biggest, like, thing to throw, and I could talk about foster care for a long time, but I won't, or you can cut me off if I um, But I would say the Lord has used foster care and becoming a foster mom greater than any other experience in my life. And I can say that because it is 100% we rest in the sovereignty of the Lord. I mean, these kids come in your home and you pour everything you have into them. You love them. I mean, we immediately loved our little girl like we did our biological kiddos. And at any point you can get a phone call and they are leaving and you can do everything right and they will show up and take these kids. And so for me, it just really took my faith to the next level and everything that you just read in scriptures and our hearts claim, you get to put it into action because you're trusting the Lord and you're walking in his sovereignty and um, fully committing yourself to something that you don't know how it ends. And, um, you know, we, we are adopting our little girl. We don't know how it ends. I mean, we're trying to navigate the relationship with her biological parents and her biological sisters that are out there and um, any potential biological siblings that could come along. I mean, it's the story's just beginning. So um, obviously we don't have it figured out, but I would just say the Lord has used it in great and mighty ways for us. You should have started here because she took my answer. So, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, but, I mean, really, that's what I was going to say, too, is that um, when you're doing this, you have to remember who is in charge, and that's the Lord. And um, he is sovereign. He knows everything. Um, he has the perfect plan for that child that comes into your home. Um, it's not always going to look like what you think it should look like, um, but he knows. And he's going to keep them safe, and he's going to use you. Um, to just show them love yeah. while you have the chance. So. Yeah. So I'll tack on one before we hand it to Kim and let her go with some of the questions that y'all sent in. But um, one of the things that we learned early on is that bio family, uh, bio moms especially, thought that we were the enemy. And vice versa, we thought she was the enemy, right? Because we went, well, you're the one who allowed abuse and neglect to happen, or you're maybe even be the cause of abuse and neglect. Um, but what we came to realize was that parents don't just wake up one morning and all of a sudden snap their fingers and go, I want to abuse or neglect my child today. Um, and it was when we started, uh, oftentimes it was just like taking a, a picture and slipping a note in their diaper bag on their way to their visit and just saying, hey, how do you like your kid's hair done? Right? Um, especially for, for the black kids that we take care of, because we were like, we're white. So, 
we're sorry about his hair. <laughs> coconut oil, people. Coconut oil. Um, <clears throat> so nonetheless, um, you know, it's just a way for us to, to begin opening up lines of communication to the point that we began going to visits and being the supervisors at visits. And we began doing, and even after we adopted, um, contacting mom and saying, hey, we're going to go to Chick-fil-A. Do you want to meet us? And her being there, and then one of the kids saying, hey, I need to go to the bathroom. And my wife being like, well, Monica can take you. Right? Like, but is she, is she just going to run? Is she going to run with our kid? Right? Like, all those fears are things that we thought. And yet, in opening up lines of communication and building into them, um, because th- they could have said, like, hey, no, we want you to just can- keep looking for family members who will adopt these kids. And when it came that time, they actually came to us because we had built that relationship and said, will you adopt our kids? Because we trust you. And did my wife get invited to go to her next baby shower for the next kid that came into care five years later? Yeah. And were we called when she was in prison and she needed a ride out of prison? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the way in Kaufman. Um, and so, but, right, like when she looks at it and says, why are you here? No one in my family cares that, that I'm here in jail. Uh, we get to say, um, because we're people who love Jesus Christ. Um, and because you've become family. And so what a tremendous opportunity is in front of you to be invited into a story uh, that looks like redeeming a family, redeeming a child, uh, seeing Christ alive and well in them. So, y'all have asked some questions. Hopefully we have some answers. All right, so um, other than, and this is for foster uh, foster families, other than the obvious differences... Um, what are some of the, the biggest differences between raising your bio kids and your foster to adopt kids? And just to kind of further clarify, did you have to change the way that you were parenting your bio kids uh, when you started to um, foster, especially when it comes to discipline? Uh, yeah, so with the, uh, with the state, when you sign up to foster, there, there's no physical discipline for the children that come into your home, uh, and for good reason. I mean, there, some of our kids have come with, uh, with abuse and neglect, and so you're a safe place, and, uh, and that's a tool that is no longer in your tool bag as a parent. And so being resourced with, uh, with new ways of parenting, uh, there's some classes that we offer here to help with that, and uh, you get training on some of that as you go through uh, through your licensing. But what we found, uh, we had uh, our first child pretty compliant. Uh, we spanked as a family. That was kind of normal, slapped on hands when they were little. Uh, and then uh, with my second child, biological daughter, uh, we were just kind of missing. And as we gained the tools uh, that were necessary for us to to be able to care f- and discipline our foster children. We found that those tools were really effective with my uh, second biological child. And so uh, don't look at it as your hands getting tied on what you don't have access to, but look at it as a training in expanding your toolbox to be able to parent your kids in different ways and, and potentially healthier ways. I would agree. Um, so we spanked our three kiddos when they were younger, and then we get in this little toddler who we cannot spank. And um, 
we learned in our training just so many tools, though, that have come. Like, so you, I put my kiddos in timeout. My big kids, well, you don't put a foster child in timeout. The last thing this child needs is to be sent away because of their behavior. So we learn to do time ins, and that's where she and I will go, and we, you know, remove ourselves from this situation, and we go and we talk about it. We do redos. We do, you know, lots of little sayings, better together, we stick together. You know, those kind of things for her to realize that, um, you know, we're in this together. We're family. This is what family does. And the crazy thing is, just like Ryan said, the stuff that we learned, we use on our big biological children all the time now because it's so great. Um, so yes, it does look different, but I would say we, at the same time, I don't think this is what the question meant, but we don't look at her any differently than we do our biological children. I mean, she, God's grown our hearts to love her in the same manner. But yeah, parenting looks a little different. But you're trained for all this too. You don't get just thrown a child and then they're like, okay, here you go. I mean, you, there's training along the way. Um, along those lines, what does the training cover that, you know, I mentioned, I can't remember now, is it 32 hours that's required depending on your level of care, but the minimum is 32-ish? So if you want to take specialized and intensive kids, you have to have 40 hours. So um, there's... And let me chime in there real quick. So there are three, well, four levels of care. Um, there's basic level, which just to not get into too much detail, but in a nutshell, kids next door, but obviously with the, the trauma of being separated from their family, um, and obviously experiencing abuse or neglect. So they have basic needs met, basic, um, uh, behaviors and that kind of thing. And then moderate level of care is the next level up, which includes, usually includes a lot more either doctor's appointments, more behaviors that necessitate the more appointments and that kind of thing, specialized, uh, specialized, and what's the one above that? Intensive. Intensive. A lot of times are, um, there are a few foster homes that will take specialized, but a lot of specialized and intensive uh, uh, kids, I almost said students, um, kids have, uh, are placed in medical facilities and, and that kind of thing, so... And you won't know their level when they're removed, and you, the, it'll say basic. Basic just means we don't know yet. Yes. Sometimes. Like, yes. we think they just need help. But, yeah. yeah. What was the question? Um, it, what is the training that you provide, the um, 34 hours of training Okay. Uh, cover. What, what's it look like? Um, so with CK, we do TBRI, trust-based relational intervention, which is um, actually a program out of TCU that Dr. Purvis um, developed. Wonderful, wonderful lady. Passed away a couple of years ago. but um, Write down the name Karen Purvis Karen and Purvis. just go to her website and live there. She passed, yes, she passed away from cancer. And before she passed away, she made sure that her videos on TBR, TBRI are on YouTube. So you can, I TBRI my kid. So, um, TBRI myself. (laughs) I know I TBRI myself. Yes. Um, it's, it's great training. It's, um, an eight hour training. It's all day. Um, and then families who want to take um, more specialized or intensive kids will have restraint training, but we do not encourage that because like you mentioned before, these kids are coming from hard places and the last thing we want to do is 
traumatize them more. But um, we also, you have to do some online trainings. Um, you have to get medication certified. Um, you have to do a psychotropic medication training, um, trauma training, um, first aid, CPR. Um, minimum, minimum standard stuff. Minimum standards, cultural, yes, cultural and normalcy is now being required. Normalcy training is being required now. Like basically you have to let the kids be normal and do fun stuff like play soccer. That's a training now. <laughs> well, and, and it's, it's sad that it has to be a training and that it has to be a standard. Like if you go out to eat, you have to buy your foster kid a, a meal as well. So, but in a nutshell, the training, the purpose of the training is to equip you and to educate you of the types of behaviors, how to respond appropriately. Obvious, it's, it's all book knowledge, right? When, but when the kid gets there, that's when um, you, you revert back to training, rely on caseworkers and that kind of thing. But they don't just place the kid in your home without any kind of education and that kind of thing. So thank you. Um, what, and David, you might be able to speak to this too, but what um, do kids come into um, your home with? Like once you're removed, what do you get to take with you? Or what did you? Are you referring to like physical things or yeah. emotional or physical? Physical. Well, um, that's a great clarifying question. <laughs> we don't have time for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 um, so, uh, for me, like moving from my relatives to you guys, um, I think the only thing I really brought with me was. Uh, a suitcase of clothes, a backpack that had maybe some books in it, um, whatever toys I had um, ended up being left behind. Um, Do you remember first removal, what you could take, or um, what you took? And Ryan and Amy, you might can also talk to that. Um, not 100%. I know that um, while I was in uh, Boysville, the facility, the shelter facility that I was in, uh, during one of my uh, visits with my mom, um, she had gotten me this uh, Game Boy Advance. So I got to take that with me to my next placement. Um, uh, apart from that, uh, I don't remember much else. I think most foster children bring very little to next to nothing. Our little girl came in through the emergency room, and so all she brought into foster care was her nightgown she was wearing, and that was it. Um, and I think that's pretty typical um, for most kiddos. Yeah, yeah. in our case. Um, so whatever they come with, uh, you have to, whenever they go back to family, uh, they have to take those things with them. And so in our case, we got a couple, like a, a little duffel bag for uh, for each of our kids. And we it didn't. some of it didn't fit anymore. And so essentially what we did was keep it and then... Um, uh, and then go shopping and get some other things. But uh, it, it wasn't much. It was a little bag. And not really, uh, uh, my son came with a, a stuffed animal. Is it a frog? That he still to this day has. Uh, and that's like the one piece that, uh, that I can remember that he came with. It is still, he still loves that thing. Yeah, and same. I, did you talk about duffel bags? I was reading questions. Oh, I, said, I said it came with a duffel bag. 
Okay. Which so our duffel bag included stuff that the CPS worker picked up at the Rainbow Room before she came. So it wasn't even her stuff, and nor was it the right size. But that's besides the point. Um, so, did you guys ha have trouble um, with extended family who may or may not be believers accepting your foster kids or adoptive kids um, and not treating them like they were different or? didn't belong, that kind of thing. Especially where race, differences in race are concerned. You know, interestingly, the, the things that in our home that we chose to not share with our family uh, are things that we would choose not to share with our family anywhere, uh, regardless of biological or, or adoptive children. And that's just simply to say, uh, I know that my family is prone to to gossip or to maybe think about my kids differently if they know certain things about them. We live 1,200 miles away from them, and I don't want there to be this cloud or a filter of them thinking about my kids differently. And so uh, we were just selective about the kinds of things that we were walking through with our biological family. Now, I, I'm not saying that you guys should always do that. That's just some, a decision that my wife and I made. And, and we had family near us being community that was helping us process the really heavy stuff. I would say we have not. That's been wonderful. And most of our family is all believers. But I'll also say we set the tone early before we ever even had our little girl. Like whatever child comes into our home, we're going to love and treat them exactly as we treat our biological children. And we would love for you all to do the same. And thankfully. And I know I'm not on the panel here. I'll back up. Um, so <laughs> we have, my mom is from southern Louisiana. And if you just want to generalize um, that population, we definitely struggled with um, certain races being placed in our home and our my um, relatives in Louisiana's response to that. And one thing that um, one of the elders told me was not that we cannot base our decision on obedience on someone else's sin because obviously racism is a sin. And so that really freed us to feeling like, you know what, we have to do what's right no matter what their response is. And um, what's beautiful is... Um, my Cajun family has loved our our kids like crazy, and I mean, op welcoming it with open arms. So we've been very, very surprised, and it's been a really sweet thing for my whole extended family. Okay. Um. So after reunification with bio parents, and this kind of goes both ways. Do you uh, ha are you allowed contact with the kids? And then on the flip side, after adoption, are parents allowed contact with the kids? Okay. I, I'd like to just, um, uh, from experience. So the family I was telling you all about that uh, bought the uh, washer and dryer and stove, um, they still have contact with the family. Um, with mom, she says, you can come to all his birthday parties and all that. But also, I have a good friend um, of 15 years that her very first placement, he was a baby. Um, she had him for about six months, and he went home to mom. Um, and since he's been home every summer, well, he's 16 or 17 now, but every summer he would come and stay a month with her for the summer. And so... She built a really positive relationship with mom, so it can happen. Yeah, for sure. How common would you say that is? 
I'm not very. Yeah. <laughs> I can't personally speak to uh, if family reunification takes place. Uh, I, I know folks that have done that. Um, so I think it's as, as much as you're open to and they're open to. Uh, in our case, for a visitation after uh, adoption was finalized in our case, we actually had a mediated settlement. And so we agreed with uh, biological parents ahead of time. Um, that we would have three visits a month and it was their responsibility to kind of reach out to us in advance of that one month prior to and then we would find uh, a place to meet. Sorry? What did I say? Three times a year. Sorry, three times a year, not three times a month. <laughs> Thank you. That is a, that's why the room went, what? <laughs> three times a year. A yeah. And so... <laughs> They would uh, they'd reach out to us, and then we would find a place like a McDonald's at the Playland, and we were present the whole time. And so we just got to further build a relationship there. We're not doing that as often anymore, but we do have continued contact with biological family. Um, so that's yeah, proven to be uh, healthy. So. Um, and we've had a lot of questions on the financial aspect of fostering and adopting. So if you guys can kind of count real quick on... Your fingers, how, how, just the financial aspect of that. What do you mean, like, how does how, it... How much does it cost to adopt, uh, to foster? Um, is, you know, is, if you're fostering and then it moves to adoption, can they afford it? That kind of thing. So, what a lot of people don't realize is that um, you get reimbursed for um, foster children, it is not a payment. It is a reimbursement because you're being reimbursed for like clothing and food and depending on their level of care, um, basic, moderate, or specialized, like we talked about earlier, depends on how much you're reimbursed. Um, and then as far as adoption, um, the state pays for that. And a lot of people don't know that either, um, that they help with that, uh, pay for attorney fees when you adopt. So, And there's an adoption subsidy yeah. that people don't know. So I'll just jump really in um, just to clear the air. So it's about $20 a day, um, and that comes out to about $600 a month if the child's with you. Um, if you have a higher level of care for that child, it's more. Um, and if a child's just with you for a few months, then usually you end up in the red because it costs a lot to kind of get them up to where they need to be. If they're with you longer, you usually end up like kind of breaking even. And uh, we've had families that we've been connected to for a long time who've taken that money and put it in kind of a savings account for the child or just invested it into experiences for that kid because we've had lots of kids come in that didn't know what it was like to jump in a bounce house um, and didn't know what it was like to go camping. And so we wanted to make sure that they had some of those experiences. Um, and then uh, to the adoption subsidy. So um, if a child is, uh, I'm a minority over the age of two, uh, if they're a sibling in a sibling group, or they're a child over the age of six, or they have a diagnosed, like a doctor looked at them and said, you've got a medical need, not you self-diagnosed at home on WebMD. Um, I know some of y'all out there. Um, anyway, uh, those, ch those children can qualify for an adoption subsidy that they receive every month until they turn 18, as well as uh, Medicaid that they have. So our youngest three kids um, all have Medicaid through 
the point of turning 18, they'll all get a public uh, education at any college that they are able to get into. In Texas. Um, so, yeah. And um, in Texas, so, yeah. In addition to that, like when you're looking at agencies, some agencies also help mm -hmm. um, like with CK when, cause kids come with nothing. So we um, reimburse families for that initial taking care of the child. So, so in a nutshell, I'm so sorry. sorry. Um, in a nutshell, the, the, the total cost is the amount of a fire inspection. If you live in Dallas County, if you're in Collin, Collin County, it's free and your fingerprints. So I think it costs us $200 total um, to move from fostering to adopting. Um, and that was because it, that was all part of the foster process, to be honest. Um, real quick, another uh, qu common question has been, um, and we have about five minutes. So um, types of families. So single parents um, and what about space, that kind of thing. Um, should, should single parents consider fostering or adopting? Um, and we'll, we'll start there. Okay. <laughs> or I guess it's not single parents. Should sing, single people. Single people. Anyways, just to clarify that. <laughs> so, yes, single people can foster. Um, families come in all shapes and sizes. Um, I'm a single parent, too. And so you can also be a single foster parent. Um, go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah, I'm done. Yeah. I, I, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I would say uh, we do have uh, some folks, uh, to my knowledge, only uh, single women that have fostered and or adopted here at Watermark. I don't know of any men that have done that. Um, I will tell you, though, just as single and parenting is hard all around, if you can imagine if that's true on one front, it's just going to be that uh, exponentially, taking a child uh, with uh, the trauma that they've experienced. And so you want to make sure that you've got a great network and foundation of support and that they're all in agreement that they are right there with you on that journey. Do not do that alone. Yeah. In your packet, um, there's actually a grid of what all the different agencies license. So like some agencies won't license single parents. Um, and so you can look at that and make sure that when you're talking to agencies, you're connecting with ones that, that match up with kind of, it even says like, hey, we're faith-based. All right. Um, and kind of let you know there. And so um, we've set up these roundtables just so that y'all have an opportunity to come and ask more questions because we knew we wouldn't be able to get to every single detail and you may have some really critical questions that are unique to your family. Um, but we do have child care and uh, um, that ends here in five minutes. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. Um, if you've got kids uh, over in uh, starting blocks or wherever it is, uh, if, if one of you would go grab your kids while the other one sticks around and asks questions and engages with the agencies and CASA and, and track that are here, um, that would be perfect. So let me close this and just kind of wrap us up in a, in a word of prayer. And uh, then we'll be dismissed. And as I mentioned, there are going to be those of us kind of around the rooms just answering questions. I'll be down here answering questions. If you're interested more in tapestry or in volunteering, uh, we'd love to talk. Let's pray. God, we ask that um, you would just continue to go before us. And then if you don't, uh, help us be patient. Um, help us wait well. God, we pray that uh, as you're just continuing to mature us and sanctify us in our faith, 
Uh, help us be people who trust in you. Help us be people that are loving and uh, discerning in just our next steps and being obedient, knowing that um, there's really nothing in your word that says this is a calling for some, but not a calling for others. Uh, that this is, in fact, just a matter of who we are as believers, uh, as people called by your name, as we carry your banner, and as we uh, live in the midst and the truth of your gospel. Uh, Father, we pray that you would walk with us and Holy Spirit, that you would move us. And um, we look forward to just what uh, the influence of our church is going to be in the days and months and years to come. Uh, Let this be true of us, that we are just identified by loving those who are hurting and vulnerable. God, we ask these things in the holy, powerful, and able name of Jesus Christ. Amen.